When I was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and I answered them as best I could. They also called me Padre. Welcome to the Dear Padre podcast. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're listening. I'm glad you're alive. Let's get started. Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in the citadel of Susa in the third year of his reign. He gave a banquet for all his officials and ministers. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were present while he displayed the great wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and pomp of his majesty for many days, 180 days in all. On the seventh day, when the king was married, when with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Bistha, Arbona, Bigtha, and Abigatha, Zether, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who attended him, to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing the royal crown, in order to show the peoples and the officials her beauty. For she was the fair she was fair to behold, but Queen Vashti refused to come, and the king's command conveyed by the but Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command conveyed by the eunuchs. At, the, at this the king was enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king consulted the sages who knew the laws, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and custom, and those next to him were Karshina, Shizar, at Admatha, Tarshish, Mares, Marcina, and Memuchan, the seven officials of the Persia of Persia and Media, who had access to the king and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Assyrius conveyed by the eunuchs, the Memuchan said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only has Queen Vashti done wrong to the king, but also to all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Assyrius. For this deed of the queen will remain known to all women, causing them to look with contempt on their husbands, since they will say, King Assyrius commanded Queen Vashti to be brought brought before him and she did not come. This was this very day the noble ladies of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will rebel against the king's officials and there will be no end of contempt and wrath. If it pleases the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be altered that Vashti is never again to come before King Asurius, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We've left the book of Job for a much happier book, Esther. Sounds like a happy book, doesn't it? The story of a young woman and uh, her adventures and life. And yet uh, the book of Esther is a book that starts out with a really difficult scenario and scene. We are in the Persian Empire. Babylon has fallen, um, invaded by, as according to the prophecy of Daniel, um, the Medo-Persian Empire has conquered them in one night. 
unexpectedly. The handwriting was on the wall, literally. And uh, that handwriting predicted that the kingdom of Babylon would be given to another. And the other um, adjoinder to that was that they're invading your city right now, O king. And Daniel spans the several kingdoms. He goes from his home in Jerusalem as a young man to live as a Babylonian magician and court official. And then uh, when Medo-Persia conquers the um, Babylonian empire in Babylon, the, he becomes a Medo-Persian official um, in that way. And the Jewish people, the people of God who are in exile, are living in this strange land. They're living in Babylon. Um, they're living in Susa and other cities where this story takes place um, in this part of the world. It is the part of the world um, today that is um, in the country of Iraq and perhaps in um, parts of Iran as well. I'm not sure exactly where Susa is, but um, it's definitely part of this um, this uh, large Medo-Persian empire. Eventually it becomes just known as the Persians uh, and eventually becomes known as the Iranian state. And uh, as many Persian people, Iranian people, came to the United States in the 1980s after the fall of the Shah of Iran, after the revolution, um, they brought with them that their beautiful language, um, Persian, and um, are part of our community in, in many wonderful ways now. But this is the part of the world this story takes place in. Um, and it starts out with this banquet scene, like a movie, almost. Um, kind of like the Godfather starting out with that wedding um, scene. A, a st- just a scene of joy and partying and all this excitement. And there's King Ahasuerus. He is probably, most likely, Xerxes I. Um, you may know him from the movie 300, um, with those 300 Spartans that hold the pass of Thermopylae in the, um, the war that sought to make Greece subservient to the Persian Empire. They ruled the known world from India, as it says here, um, all the way um, I think it gives the the span of the empire here in the actual text of scripture, but um, to Ethiopia, to Kush, so from India to Kush, um, and all of this is divided into different satrapies, and we see that in the text of Esther as well. But this this amazingly wealthy empire has at its head this king, Ahasuerus, Xerxes, um, and he is a god-like figure for them. You can see that in the movie 300. Um, some have speculated on the timing of Esther in the history that this story takes place right after his defeat by the Greek fleet in, after the battle um, at Thermopylae and the Battle of Marathon um, that um, Xerxes goes home in defeat after not being able to conquer Greece and this story takes place then. And we see a, a very different king in this story, one who is still really wealthy and powerful, but has been defeated 
by a little group of people that he didn't think could win. Hard to say where if that's true or not, if that's really where um, that we can place this, but it kind of makes sense given the personalities of the king, the personality of the king that we do get to know in this story. He is a pompous man. Um, king, we have seen a lot of pomp and circumstance from royalty in the last couple of days. Um, one of the roles of the king and queen in any monarchy is to display such grandeur that people then will associate and ascribe characteristics of royalty to those very, in many other ways, ordinary people. It's hard to believe that a king or a queen has any power um, of hereditary power unless they are descended from a line of kings and queens and maybe even from God. Um, the divine right of kings is one that has been asserted many times in English history. Um, and that can mean a lot of different things for a lot of different people. One, that this, these royal lineages are descendants from God himself, or they have some sort of special relationship with God that nobody else can have. Um, all these have been debunked scientifically in, in lots of ways, but um, by displaying pomp and lavish productions of pageantry and liturgies and all that, um, monarch, monarchs show that they are special. They are set apart in this way. Um, and this is what we see in this story. There is a contrast at the very beginning between the simple girl, Esther, who is not from a wealthy family. She's from a group of people that was conquered and lives at the margins of society there, is not part of the citizenry or mainstream in any way, um, in contrast to the vast power and wealth of Ahasuerus. So we can see that um, God is at work in this story, but we will have to see how God is at work um, through the ways people act. This big party, this lavish dinner involves lots of drinking, they are drinking with flagons without restraint, the text says. Um, they're going all out. Um, they are sort of ordered to drink at this banquet. They are ordered to live it up. This is the social setting of, of their world that they have um, responsibilities to be part of this party. So this is just as official of an act as the official state liturgies or whatever they do to show their pomp and power, their parades through the streets, their coronation ceremonies, all these things to point to the prestige of these, this one guy, the king, the emperor. Um, so this is just as much a part of that. And deep in his cups, this king um, calls for his wife Vashti. She is having a banquet for her court women officials separately. This was common in Persia. The harem system that develops in the Islamic Byzantine Empire um, is really borrowed from the Persians who kept very separate spheres between men and women at the top strata of society. And you can see that here in the story. There are two parties going on, one with Ahasuerus and the men, 
and another with Queen Vashti and the women in the palace there. He calls for her to come um, to wear the royal crown. You can, and for everyone to see her great beauty because she's really beautiful. That's how she became queen. It was her outward physical beauty that um, caused Ahasuerus to select her as his queen. And so he wants to show her off at this big party. Some have speculated that um, when he demands that she wear the royal crown, that he is demanding that she wear the royal crown and nothing else. It does not explicitly say that in the text, but there is an element of humiliation in this. There is an element of um, just uh, shaming a person, um, a wife, in this way that is in the story as well, to put her on display for his own uh, purposes and ego. So when she refuses to come, There, be, there is a crisis. This is not just um, some small marital dispute. It is a very public one. Um, and she has stood up to this king. Um, the word king and queen is, are interesting words in English. The word queen did not mean uh, someone with any a power or authority. It just simply meant wife of the king um, for many years. Now, in modern English, the word queen connotates someone who can rule in her own right, Queen Victoria. Um, Queen Mary, Queen Elizabeth, and Queen Elizabeth II. Um, But in older English, um, the word queen just meant the king's wife. There was no power associated with it. Um, And that is certainly true in the Persian world as well. The queen certainly has a certain amount of influence and status, but it does not mean she is a co-equal ruler with her husband, King Ahasuerus. In fact, it never means that. And this story illustrates how there's such a disparity between their power. He calls her to come. She refuses. Um, And these palace eunuchs, these enslaved people who have um, serve a function in this palace system, um, deliver the message. The king is enraged. His anger is burning. And so instead of storming over there and making a scene, he consults his sages. Um, Somehow this becomes a bigger crisis than just a marital spat. There becomes this legal crisis. Um, It is amazing how um, when we examine the breakdown of relationships, whether marriage relationships or any other relationships, there is this sort of legal element to it that always comes in and it changes everything, and that's what the king does. Um, Now he has got his team of lawyers and um, officials on his side to decide what to do to Queen Vashti because she hasn't obeyed the king's command, conveyed by the eunuchs. These repetitive phrases are really something here. Um, Not only has Queen Vashti done something to the king, they say, she's done something to all the officials and all the people in the entire Medo-Persian Empire. Whoa, what she has done is much bigger. And they tell him, what's going to happen is this deed of the queen, this refusal of the queen to come and be put on display at this drunken party, is, um, is going to undermine the authority structure of the entire empire. That if 
the queen can say no to her husband and disobey him, then every woman, as they say in this text, every lady in the whole kingdom will rebel against the king's officials and there will be no end to the contempt and wrath. These officials um, kind of know how things work, that there is a case, and case law and precedent. If somebody can, at the top can say no, that means the people down below have a better chance of saying no as well. Um, you can see the structure of an evil empire here based on patriarchal coercion that this king is always right and everybody has to obey him. Um, and if anybody defies him, there, be, there comes this great um, crisis. Um, and so this is the setting of the stage. Um, and these officials convince him um, that what she has done is, um, is really truly a huge breach of the whole structure of the empire. Um, and this is the setting that Esther enters this extremely patriarchal, coercive empire with a god-like emperor at the very top. Um, and here, this little girl, um, young woman, is um, entered in. She is called a girl in this story, um, uh, not really a, a woman of, of... She's a youth. Um, and this is another part of the story that um, we are confronted with in the story of Esther. As Bishop Ryan, our bishop um, for the western region of our diocese, she was here for Easter, um, said, The book of Esther is how God saves people through a series of difficult conversations. And we will see that in the book of Esther play out. That um, ultimately it's not an action. It, there's some action in it. There's some fighting and skirmishing and some executions and all sorts of intrigue, palace intrigue. But at the heart of it is a, is a series of difficult conversations. Um, difficult conversations are difficult for a reason. Um, we often put them off. We often find ways around them. Um, and the book of Esther shows us that God can work through difficult conversations. So I invite you today to think about and pray about the difficult conversations that you need to have in your life. What are they? What do you need to say? Um, we need to say what we think and feel. Um, we need to say what will save lives. We need to say what um, is right. Um, Jesus was a person full of grace and truth. Um, he was full of grace and he was full of truth. Most of us are one or the other. We are so full of grace that we don't really um, uh, make distinctions between what is right and wrong. We don't have good discernment. Um, we're, we are just want everybody to be happy and everybody to like us and be cool and chill and all those things. And so just having grace um, is not following Jesus. Jesus was full of grace and truth. And then there's others of us that have a lot of truth and no grace, um, that things must be done in a certain way. And when they're not, um, we uh, react to that. And uh, I think all of us have been one or the other at certain times of our life, but we're probably all prone to one of those things over the other. Um, and people who are um, 
more concerned with truth than grace often find that um, to be very rigid, very black and white thinking about how everyone should act and behave around them. Um, Jesus is both. He's full of grace and truth. So following Jesus means that we follow him in that way. And Esther does that. Even though she's never heard of Jesus, she is living out this um, life of Christ in her own way, in her own trials, in her own tribulations. Um, She is full of grace and truth. She knows that it's not enough just to say what's true, that it has to be said with grace. It's not enough to just have grace. There has to be truth. Lives are on the line. Her whole people that are exiled there are almost subject to annihilation. And she has come to this kingdom for such a time as this. And you have too. God has put you where God needs you to be today. I don't know where that is, but God has put you there. And you need to be full of grace and truth in that moment. So let's pray. Oh God, fill us with grace and truth. Help us to be like your son, Jesus, who lived that out. And ultimately in his crucifixion embodies grace and truth. He says things from his cross that are true. And he says things that are full of grace. And everything he says are both at the same time. So help us to speak those words of grace and truth today as Jesus and Esther have done. Amen. September 16th is the feast day of one of my favorite saints, mainly just for his name, St. Ninian. That's right, St. Ninian. They're not naming a lot of babies Ninian these days. Maybe we need to bring that back. That'd be kind of a fun name to hear at the uh, preschool, daycare, or school. Ninian, come over here. Um, the dates of, his, of Ninian's life and the exact extent of his work are much disputed. I'm not sure who's disputing them. I guess historians. I've never gotten involved in that. The earliest and possibly best account of his brief um, entry of, and account of his life is in the Venerable Bede's Ecclesiastical History. If you're into at all into um, Anglicanism or English spirituality, reading Venerable Bede is a really worthwhile pursuit. He's the inventor of the footnote. If you've ever loved or hated footnotes, he's the one that invented that. And um, his stories that he tells of this time period are really fascinating and do set the stage for what happens in England, even today in the um, coronation and burial of Queen Elizabeth. You can see a lot of those themes um, played out in the Venerable Bede's history. He was a guy, a monk, that lived in Jarrow uh, and really never traveled, but he collected stories. He collected history um, from that place. Ninian was a Romanized Briton. Um, the, British, the British Isles were conquered by Rome about the same time that um, Palestine and Jerusalem and Galilee were conquered by the Romans similar time period. So they were there very early um, and stayed. So he uh, lived in the latter half of the fourth century in southern Scotland. He is said to have been educated in Rome and to have received Episcopal ordination. But the main influence on his life was Martin of Tours. Martin of Tours is the patron saint of veterans. He is a Roman soldier who um, famously sees a shivering beggar Um, in a winter, very cold day, and he cuts his 
long Roman army cavalry cape in half, gives half of it to um, the beggar and keeps the other half to stay warm to get home. And that night, Jesus appears to Martin and says, I want you to follow me, um, be a soldier for Christ. And he becomes a monk and then a bishop. One of the great things about Martin that we know from his life um, is that uh, he liked rural people. He liked living out, as one scholar said, living out in Trump land um, to minister there to the rural people that lived in tiny villages. And he planted dozens of churches in these communities as a bishop and as a monk. And, um, and he was also a person of peace. When he was attacked and maligned and things were stolen from his um, see his bishop job at um, Tours, where he was the bishop, um, he wouldn't fight back. And he was often criticized for that. But um, one of the hallmarks of the soldier saint's life. So Ninian is a disciple of him and colleague of his. And you can see that ethos in his missionary work and church planning work. About the time of Martin's death in 397, um, a lot of things are named after Martin, San Martin and uh, the islands, um, Martin Miss, all those, um, his name gets around. It's, of course, Martin Luther is named after St. Martin of Tours. Um, and Mar- Martin Martin of Tours, the patron saint of veterans, is named after the god of war, Mars, a very common Roman name for young boys in the military families was the god of war, Mars. So this god of war um, becomes a follower of the god of peace. Um, he established a place called Candida Casa, the White House, at Whithorn in Galloway in Scotland, and which he dedicated to St. Martin of Tours. Traces of place names and church dedications suggest that his work covered the Solway Plains in the Lake District of England, so a big geographic area, Ninian seems to have converted many of the Picts, the Pict group, the tribe there in southern Scotland, as far, far north as the Moray Firth. Ninian, together with Patrick, is one of the links of continuity between the ancient Roman British Church and the developing Celtic Christianity of Ireland and Scotland. Um, the idea that there's a distinctive Celtic Christianity in um, British Christianity or in the UK or Ireland or Scotland or wherever you locate that, um, it's, it's not as distinct from Rome as, as many early scholars of the movement would say, but there was a shared ethos there that then trickles into what we call the Anglican Church today and the Anglican Communion. So a lot of their religious distinctives, Anglican Church, that um, we are part of today. So we thank God for Ninian and um, all those who work there And whenever I read about a church planting saint, I think about you guys. I think about you. Because in all these stories, we have very small glimpses of the people that Ninian um, served as a bishop and as a missionary. We have very small glimpses of them. We usually have a bigger glimpse of the church planter. And I hate that because um, you are the ones planting this church. Um, I get a lot of credit and accolades and attention for that. But ultimately, it's you who are doing this work. Um, and I hope as we get older and we look back on these days of early beginnings and we learn how to memorialize the work that we've done and give glory to God, that you will be at the center of that, that we will see your pictures on that wall, um, of God's grace 
um, as I've, I've seen, I see them every single day um, and celebrate that. So whenever I think about a church planter like Ninian, I think about all the people that made that work possible, um, people like you. O oh God, by the preaching of your blessed servant and bishop Ninian, didst cause the light of the gospel to shine in the land of Britain. Grant, we beseech thee, that having his life and labors in remembrance, we may show forth our thankfulness by following the example of his zeal and patience through Jesus Christ our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Almighty God, whose most dear Son went not up to joy, but first he suffered pain, and entered not into glory before he was crucified, mercifully grant that we, walking in the way of the cross, may find it none other than the way of life and peace. Through the same thy Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Lord Jesus Christ, who did stretch out thine arms of love on the hard wood of the cross, that everyone might come within the reach of thy saving embrace, so clothe us in thy spirit that we, reaching forth our hands in love, may bring those who do not know thee to the knowledge and love of thee, for the honor of thy name. Amen.